This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. There we go. Uh, welcome. Hello and welcome to Dialogue Sunday Study. Today, uh, February 27th, 2022, with Esther Kanderi. Uh, we have with us today um, Rebecca Deschweinitz, myself, and Michael Austin, and Esther Kanderi from the Dialogue Foundation Board. We are pleased and excited to welcome Esther as a member of the board, but also today as a teacher. And uh, uh, we also have with us Jackson Washburn and Alyssa Amundsen, who will offer prayers and also be here on the screen participating. Um, today's material, so that we can link uh, modestly with the Come Follow Me program, we're working with the chapters 24 to 33 from Genesis. Obviously, Esther will pick and choose what she takes out of those chapters, but to sync up with the Come Follow Me program. Those are the chapters that are the reading for the last week of February and the first week of March. That will fit us in the calendar. Um, I'm Chris Kimball. I probably forgot to mention my name, but it's on the screen there. Uh, we are recording. We are using the uh, webcast format so that if you have comments or questions, you should put them in chat, and we will try to follow and introduce them when appropriate. We're also live on Facebook right now. Um, as a something of a change, we are recording the hour that is kind of the formal lesson structure, uh, and then we will separately record our after conversation after the closing prayer. And, uh, and treat those recordings separately, but we will now try to record the, the after conversation. Um, let me talk about dialogue for a minute. Uh, Jean England wrote in the first issue of the journal, my faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. And that's what we're about. To fulfill that vision in the 21st century, we have made the current journal, all 54 plus years available online. Um, we have made this gospel study program available online by recording and other digital offerings available online, all free for online users. Um, making it available free after 50 years of, of a published and journal that was a subscription program has meant restructuring our finances and we are in the middle of raising capital that will make it possible to continue dialogue into the foreseeable future we encourage you to contribute encourage you to participate in dialogue's future um, for more information you can go to give to dialogue.com thank you um, now, let's move to today's program, and I'd like to introduce um, Esther Kandari. Um, is that the right place for to put the vowels there? I keep okay. We'll stick with that. Esther was born to a mixed Asian American family, raised in on the beautiful eastern shore of Oahu, Hawaii. As an artist, her work reflects this rich multicultural upbringing and often draws upon Polynesian symbols and cultural ideologies. Her work is primarily figurative and explores concepts such as multiracial identity, gender, and the female gaze in the context of religion and the nuance of human psychology that can be expressed in human portraiture. Um, Many of her portraits break the fourth wall with their direct gaze and challenge the viewer to engage with the subject on an intimate level, rather than merely to observe. Uh, her painting techniques are traditional in nature, but her meticulously crafted multimedia applications infuse the works with a unique, innovative, and captivating edge. Her work's been published, exhibited, and purchased in cities across the country, including New York, Salt Lake City, and San Francisco. Um, she currently lives in Utah County with her husband, two needy cattle dogs, and an ever-growing collection of houseplants. And she's here with us today. We're welcome. 
As with every speaker and participant, um, Esther speaks for herself. We invited her for herself. Even though she's a new member of the Dialogue Foundation Board, she doesn't speak for Dialogue today, um, nor for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is um, Esther's voice, and uh, we're excited about it, uh, but um, she's responsible for herself, put it that way. We are going to open today with a um, song called If We're Honest, performed by Francesca Petistelli. And then uh, our opening prayer will be offered by Jackson Washburn. Jackson's a student at Harvard Divinity School, currently pursuing a master's of theological studies with a focus on the history of the Christianity. And then our closing prayer after the whole hour will be by Alyssa Amundsen. Um, Alyssa works in Channel Stales at Instructure, get that right, company that makes the Canvas Learning Management Systems. She spent 12 years as a high school humanities educator and softball coach. She's a classically trained harpist, currently serving as president of the Utah chapter of the American Harp Society. She served a mission in uh, the Ru Russian, uh, how do you say it? Novosibirsk. Siberia. Novosibirsk, Novosibirsk, no, Novosibirsk, there we go, Novosibirsk, Russia, mission. Um, where do we go? Uh, she says she's most proud of waiting long enough to marry Clark Hominson, uh, who just finished law school and works as a public defender in Salt Lake City. So we'll begin with music, uh, Francesca Battistella. Um, and Esther wanted me to remind everybody that if this music makes you want to get up and move, if you are feeling it, uh, let it happen. Let it happen. Uh, we're all we're all home on Zoom anyway. Let it happen. Our loving and gracious God in heaven. We're thankful for the opportunity to come before you today for this special gospel study and ask a blessing upon the presenter and participants that all those involved may feel spiritually edified by the discussion. Lord, we bring to you our fears, hopes, and sorrows regarding the recent invasion and attacks against Ukraine by Russian forces. We ask that your peace and comfort may be with all those impacted and suffering from this conflict. We ask that the necessary hearts may be softened so as to end it quickly, that the bloodshed and violence might be brought to a swift and diplomatic close. We ask you to bless all of us with insight and an understanding of how we may best support those afflicted by the conflict through our words, our resources, and uh, other means. Help us to be mindful of the ways that we can promote the cause of peace in our hearts homes and nations, even as we stand firmly opposed to acts of injustice and evil. We're grateful for the many liberties and privileges we enjoy and ask that you might be with the Ukrainian people during this time as they defend their families, communities, and freedoms. Help us to not forget the shared humanity of all of your children across the world as we seek to renounce war and proclaim peace. We're grateful for the many blessings you have given us, and we ask that we might look to the example of your son, the Prince of Peace, in the days to come, and say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Esther, you have the floor. Jackson, thank you for remembering Ukraine. It's constantly on my mind. Thank you, Jackson. That was a really beautiful prayer. I feel like we've already started this off on a wonderful foot, and I'm grateful for everyone who made that possible. So we're going to jump over now. I've got a PowerPoint. Um, this is the educator in me. We have to have a PowerPoint, but it's also an excuse to share lots of really great art because I feel like that's one of the best ways to teach truth is through art. Am I biased? Probably, but I have met a few people that were argue against me on that point. Okay, can we see everything? Uh, 
I'm taking the silence as a assent. We're good. It, it's loading, but it's there. Yes. Perfect. Oops. Okay, just a second. Let me actually just switch to this one. There we go. Okay, we'll just do this. Um, so I'm going to be covering, as he said, Genesis 24 to 33. And as I read through these chapters, what I felt um, prompted to do is to do a thematic analysis of these chapters, because there's so many narratives we can hone in on and specific stories and things we can pull from that. But I wanted to zoom out and take kind of a bigger picture look at the family of Abraham in this particular time period and some of the lessons we can learn from those overarching stories and how that reflects into our current lives and our current times. And the two themes that arose for me were conflict and covenants and the relationship between those two. And so that's primarily what we're going to be exploring today. Um, before we do, I always like to start off my lessons by putting people into a certain mindset by asking you to approach things a certain way. And as I was writing out this, um, I, came, I came up with a statement that I feel like summarizes what I hope we experience together today. And something that I, I really appreciated and learned from um, spending time in the Bible Belt and attending a Baptist school was how their concept of prayer and worship were much more diverse and fluid than ours are. And they would oftentimes have these prayers where they would uh, write them up on the screen and you recite them together as a congregation. And I really liked that concept. And I'm not gonna make you guys recite this with me, but I wanted to read it word for word so I could really capture um, what I'm trying to communicate with this. So it's, as academics and disciples, we are on a journey of questions, not a quest for absolutes that lead to systemized perfection. We perpetually seek to ask new, insightful and actionable questions. Today, I am not here to present conclusions, but rather to propose postulations with the intent of catalyzing you to inquire. Today, may we, together, seek to be present, not prescient. So as we dive into this, I want to invite you to do one thing first, and that's to consider your lens. Uh, for those of you who might be in the humanities or the arts, this is probably a conversation you've had a lot when we talk about you know, the gaze of a subject, you know, the gaze of the creator, um, the way that we perceive and interpret content. And some questions I'd like you to take to guide your analysis of your personal lens are, how did the political landscape of the original writers of the Hebrew Bible affect their perception and interpretation of divine guidance? How did the racial, racial tensions of the time influence their narratives? How did the harsh landscape of Mesopotamia and the challenging lifestyle of nomads influence these people's perception of divinity and mercy? And then how did the ideological views of early European translators affect the rhetoric they presented in their translations or edits of the text? Because we're going to be reading from um, the, the English version. I'm trying to pull in some elements from Hebrew and Greek translations as well, but a lot of what we have currently comes from things that have been filtered through a Western lens, filtered through contemporary um, narratives as well, at least in our personal perceptions. So for your personal lens, I want you to think about how do the Protestant roots of the restored gospel influence your assumptions about the biblical world? How does your racial background and artistic exposure influence your imagination of biblical civilizations? How do your personal experiences, gender, sexuality, influence your perception of gender roles and relationships? And to summarize that, I always like to emphasize, your lens is not inherently bad, but it is inherently limited, which means that your learning is limited. By pushing yourself beyond your lens, you expand your opportunities for growth and learning. And that's what I try to do as a teacher is I want to push you beyond my lens. I want to push you beyond yours. I want to push you beyond the lens of the writers that give us these texts that we um, use in a liturgical way in our practice, in our religion. Okay, so without further ado, let's dive in. So starting off in Genesis chapter 24, we have um, Abraham who is ailing and he recognizes that his son Isaac needs to marry. And he commands his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. 
And something that I found interesting is from the very beginning of this portion of the narrative, we start with a covenant. But in this case, it's a covenant with what I like to say, a lowercase c covenant. Um, oftentimes within Latter-day Saint theology and narrative, we focus a lot on the capital C covenants, the covenants that are associated with ordinances, you know, baptism, temple covenants alike. But especially in the Old Testament, there are countless examples of these smaller, more personal covenants that are made between individuals, that are made between individuals and God, that are made between groups and God. And it really got me thinking about the definition of a covenant and the role that this concept can play in my personal practice as an individual, as part of a community, as a disciple. And so we start off this with this um, servant making a covenant with Abraham to find a wife for Isaac and a wife who would help him to live the lifestyle that um, Abraham wanted. Now, there's a lot of interesting politics there um, when we look at the entire Abrahamic family in that the only two generations where the narrative emphasizes the need for a quote-unquote covenant wife are Isaac and Jacob. Um, a lot of current scholarship seems to point to the fact that Sarah and like her whole storyline might have been retroactively fitted into this narrative. And then when we get to the 12 tribes, it suddenly is just not mentioned at all. Um, so I thought it was really interesting that the Come Follow Me manual, that's what they hyper-focus on, even though it's only a topic of discussion for two generations in the actual text. Um, so I wanted to focus instead on this broader concept of covenants because we see this repeated throughout the story. Again, we see a covenant when the servant gets to the well and he's in the, the village or the township where Rebecca is at. And he, the whole classic story of him saying the, the woman or the girl who comes and gives me water and offers water to my camels as well. She's the one who's going to become the wife of my master. And in this case, he's making a covenant with God. He's saying, I've come on this journey. I am following with faith. I've done what I need to do. I don't know who this person is going to be. So I've fulfilled X. Therefore, could you please fulfill Y? Um, and it's interesting to me looking at these instances. And you see multiple um, examples of this in stories like Hannah or the mother of Samson, where individuals come to God in prayer. And it's very transactional. And I think, especially within Latter-day Saint tradition, we really discourage transactional prayers um, because we don't know God's thoughts. We don't know God's timing. But I think there's a lot to be said for having the faith to ask for a specific answer and having the faith to say, I have fulfilled my covenants. Can you please fulfill yours? I have fulfilled my promises. I have done what I need to do. I want to see the manifestation on the other side. Um, and it definitely puts this concept of prayer and the role that covenants play with that on a much more level playing field. Um, I gave a talk about prayer a while back, and something that I found fascinating there was the repetition of the phrase um, prayer as a tool to bring our will into concordance with God. And when we look at the word concordance, it's a coming together. It's a compromise. It's not an a subversion or a um, overriding of will. It's a meeting of wills. And I feel like we see this a lot in these narratives where the family of Abraham, these founders of the Abrahamic covenant are coming to God and coming to a concordance of wills, coming to meet eye to eye. Um, and it's not just about always subversion of their wills to God's. Okay, um, so the question I have here, and if any of my fellow panel members want to chime in and answer anything, great. If not, we'll move on and you guys can ponder this on your own. But it is, what covenants have you made in your life outside of the ordinance-bound ones? So what promises have you made? What oaths have you made? And I think a lot of this is cultural. I think about growing up in Hawaii and the Polynesian culture, and a lot of, I feel, the unspoken covenants that you exist within as part of this more collectivist culture, the way that I feel bound to my community, the way I feel bound to my elders, the way that I feel bound to the literal land that I was born on. Um, and it, they might not use the word covenant, but there's a lot of 
parallel language that is used in the culture that I was raised in to capture this essence of mutual responsibility and the way that that is so essential to um, the function of a community. So I'll state the second question and then we can discuss as people feel necessary. So what personal covenants would you make or could you make that would improve your relationships with those around you and God? Okay, does anybody want to chime in? I can chime in, Esther. Please do. The first thing you add, that first question is, is I'm a, I'm a stepmom and we don't have our own kids yet. We're working on that through uh, leveraging some science to expand the family, expand the family brand a little bit. But um, my stepchildren are 14 and 11 respectively. And one of the promises I made to both those girls is that I would always be there for them and that I would never lie to them, which was kind of a key theme for a little bit in their lives. But that's, that's what came to mind first for me was promises I've made to my stepkids that I'm legally bound to through my spouse. And then, you know, they're not sealed to me specifically, they're sealed to my husband, but, um, but I know those kinds of promises to them are important for our relationship. Thank you. I love that you share that because that's something that really weighed heavy on my heart as I was reading these narratives is that I felt like the way that they're commonly presented within church culture is exclusive of anyone that doesn't have the quote unquote, you know, perfect, perfect heteronormative relationship. And so how do we expand this narrative so that it's inclusive of people with mixed families where because of, you know, the church's stances on ceiling that can be some weird sticky dynamics there as far as doctrine and you know women who are in their second marriages or people that are in queer relationships or any of these sort of non-standard relationships how can they still draw upon the power of making promises in their life and including prayerful divine power in those promises whatever that looks like for them so thank you for sharing that anybody else yeah, um, I, I think uh, in the political or civic sphere, uh, of course, uh, uh, many um, individuals who find themselves in positions of public office or, or other capacities uh, often uh, make some type of like, uh, there's a swearing in ceremony, right? Uh, which I find to be, you know, uh, of course, uh, covenantal in nature. And while, um, uh, you know, those who occupy uh, such offices uh, participate in those um, kind of, uh, uh, you know, covenants uh, to both their roles and their constituents uh, or those they represent. Um, I, I think the, the rest of us um, uh, could do well by uh, thinking about the kind of unspoken covenants we make as members of our local communities, um, uh, cities, towns, and, and other um, spaces where, I don't know, it, I I think for me, as I've reflected on that um, with respect to different civic duties that I engage in, whether in voting or or uh, other other activities, um, it uh, brings a a kind of seriousness to the task uh, that I I try not to forget. Um, but I, I do feel like often um, I don't know perhaps partisan politics or uh, other kinds of uh, disagreements can uh, obscure. Um, what I would hope are uh, very serious commitments to the communities and societies that we engage in and um, seek to better and improve. Um, so at least that's that's what comes to mind for me with respect to um, external um, covenants outside of ordinances, um, those that impact the, the civic or political sphere. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And no, I really appreciate that. I feel like it's something, especially in America, I think we've lost sight of that. Um, what it means to truly make an oath and to have that be reciprocal and to have it be respected and to have it be something that is truly binding, not just something that we use as we, as needed for PR and political gain. Right. Okay. We're going to move forward here. Oh, unless somebody else wanted to say something. No, I was, I was, yes, I was going to add that um, my imagination is sometimes limited by the fact that we use covenant in the church connected with the temple connected with ordinances um, to have the weight of a, of permanence but mm-hmm. it, but there are lots of things we 
lots of things I, lots of things we promise, commit um, to show up to a meeting on time, um, to, uh, you know, to deliver on a product that we're producing uh, there. And, and all of that to me is, is covenant as well. I, that is, mm-hmm. I don't, I think if I put the limit of it only applies, the word only applies to a, a, a permanent forever kind of commitment. That's way too limiting. There are lots of mm-hmm. things that I do in my everyday life with my children, with my uh, spouse, with my uh, neighbors that have mm-hmm. a, a promise and I intend to carry through. I, mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. Okay, so in the same chapter, um, after this whole exchange with the servant and Rebecca deciding to go with him to marry Isaac, which I, I, I thought it was kind of funny reading through this narrative. Um, as I was going through it, it had been a while since I'd read through it word for word, and the whole exchange happens pretty much between um, the servant and Rebecca's father and uncle to start with. It's like, you know, he meets her and gives her the jewelry and all the cultural symbolism of that. But then, you know, the marriage contract is worked out between the men in the family. And my inner feminist was like, yeah, where's the consent in this conversation? Um, but we get to the way end of the conversation and her family is like, oh, by the way, do you want to do this? And it's like, okay, well, at least they finally got to it. They did ask her. She did consent. This is something that she is choosing to be an active participant in. Um, so I don't have to wrestle with that quite as much as I was nervous about at first. Um, but one of the, the moments slightly later on in the story that I've heard retold many times with a very uh, specific moralistic interpretation is when she is going to meet Isaac, um, she veils her face when she seats him in the distance as she approaches him. And then kind of the intertextual reading is that then she doesn't unveil it until their wedding day. Um, and I, I always thought that was a little bit odd because given the context, she was obviously traveling with lots of people. And so why would she veil it when she met her husband? What was the symbolism of that? Um, Because if veiling was so important to her, why wasn't she veiled the entire time? Um, Why was it specifically before she met her her betrothed, who she was going to marry in a very short period of time? Uh, So I went and did a bunch of reading into Jewish interpretations of this story because I knew that it reflected a lot of their contemporary practice. And I'm a strong believer that the, the Hebrew Bible is written from a Hebrew perspective, and so for us to fully understand it, it's really important to do our best to understand that perspective instead of trying to read in our Christian, our Western perspective into what is an Eastern narrative. Um, and there's two totally different interpretations of this story that I found by different Jewish scholars, and I really appreciated both of them, um, and it's actually one of the things I really enjoy about reading Uh, rabbinic scholarship is I feel like they are much more comfortable oftentimes than specifically Protestant Christians in coming to very different conclusions from a text. It's part of their approach. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but this is the the impression I've gotten from the readings that I've done is that they really embrace the, uh, the wrestling with these narratives. They embrace the teasing out answers and stories and looking at it from a very, um, very literary standpoint, not so much a literal standpoint. Um, And I feel like I learn a lot from approaching it through their eyes in this way. So the first narrative that I came across or interpretation of this narrative was that when Rebecca draws her veil, it is a symbol of her uh, stating her individuality even as she enters into a covenant. And it sets this precedent that in a marriage or any other covenantal relationship between individuals, that it's important for you to be your own person, to exercise your free agency, we might say within, you know, uh, Latter-day Saint linguistics, um, but that you can still be bound so integrally to a person, that you can exist in this covenantal state without losing yourself. And so that was one interpretation by Lauren Eichler Birkin. And another one, I looked at it more from a literary standpoint of it being a foreshadowing of her relationship with Isaac and how there's multiple instances where she is given light and knowledge. She is given revelation. She is given prophecy. And she chooses not to share it with Isaac for whatever reason that might be. And so her drawing her veil in her initial meeting with Isaac represents her drawing 
a line in the sand. It represents her drawing a veil of um, seclusion away from her husband. And it sets this precedent that then sends ripples out through generations because she did not fully trust or was not fully vulnerable with her husband. And this interpretation comes from Rabbi Adam Levitt. Um, so again, two totally different approaches to this, but I think there's great things that can be drawn from both. And so my question in relation to that is, how do you bring your best and most authentic self to a collaborative relationship? And then from the other standpoint, what cultural practices, expectations, or ideologies lead you to instinctively distrust those with whom you should and could be counseling with? And with that one, I really want you guys to think about beyond just a marriage relationship any sort of these close relationships that we develop within, especially a church community, whether that's a ward council, whether that's a presidency, a bishopric, whatever that might look like, how are we drawing veils of distrust because of our cultural fears or perceptions of that person or our perceived roles within that relationship? Okay, go for it, peanut gallery. I like being a part of the peanut gallery, Esther. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I, what comes to mind, I, as mentioned in, in my bio, is that I'm a, um, I, I work in, in, for a company that, uh, so I'm in a sales wing, which is um, more and more women are involved in sales and coming out of a classroom. Um, I, I was taught for 10 years that my skill set, I have a master's degree. I uh, read extensively. I taught history and English literature and Russian literature. And, um, but there's this mindset that, you know, the only place that you can thrive, the only skills that you have as a teacher are in the classroom. And so if you leave, then you have nothing to offer the world. Um, well, I, I was forced out for financial reasons because it's, you know, this is a discussion for another day and the criminality of, um, a, a, an educator not being able to support their family on an educator's salary. But, um, I found myself in this business wing that I never imagined I'd be in and um, and being tentative about being a woman in that in, in the business aspect, especially a woman that is um, trying to have children and uh, will will be planning on maintaining my career and, and expanding my career and, and pursuing uh, my career goals even as we welcome children in, God willing, into our family. And, and it's been really interesting to be very tentative and hesitant. Uh, we, when we tried our first um, IVF transfer, I didn't want to tell uh, my boss, who is also a member of the church, um, why I'd be gone. I didn't, I didn't want to, I just wanted to claim a sick day or, or a day off. And then just in casual conversation, you know, I, I'm, I'm not really good at the, you know, making up other stories and I kind of don't like it. And I just said, well, it's, you know, we're, we're working through IVF and I, you know, need a couple of days off in there. And it was terrifying, but his, his entire, in, he, everything changed. And he actually brought our VP in to the conversation. And both of them reassured me that I, they had my full, I had their full support and that if I needed multiple days off, if I needed anything to help the process go easier, like to just let them know. Uh, but that was a really interesting cultural challenge that I had to overcome to talk about as a woman with uh, on a predominantly male team. And then to be I, and I shouldn't have been surprised by um, by bosses and people being super excited for me to be on this journey. And so that that's it. And I, and I work and I've been working diligently to bridge the gap between being a woman in a business, in the business world and the, you know, all the, all the things that come with that, but also to being vulnerable enough to have that conversation, but also trying to balance the wisdom that that's not, that's not a normal experience for a lot of women. Thanks for sharing, Alyssa. Anyone else? There's a, there's a comment here uh, from S. Brian. I want to bring up. This really reminds me of my work on a local board where I am very different from the other board members in religion, political views, age, class, etc. I'm constantly fighting my feelings of judgment and fear of rejection while working with these other board members to build up our community. Um, and I would just comment and add that because this ties to what I would have said on my own, which is 
that very line, I am very different from the other board members. Uh, that's something I put on myself. I think we, uh, I mean, I've seen it happen so often. Uh, the feeling that I am very different is like, I'm not wanted. I'm not welcome. I'm not uh, present as who I am. So I have to be someone different. And that's the very opposite of being your best and most authentic self, which you, you're asking about. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, since we're on the topic of boards, I'll be the first to admit when Dialogue reached out to me and asked if I wanted to be on the board, I was excited, but I was very intimidated. I went and I knew a few of the members of the board already, but I went and looked at the whole list and definitely felt like the the noob on that list. Um, but as I was thinking about it, I was like, okay, so what qualifies someone to be on a board of a nonprofit? And why is someone on a board of a nonprofit? Um, and I personally believe, at least, that that's because you have a passion for doing good in the community, that you're willing to dedicate time and resources to the betterment of a specific topic. And when I've served in similar positions in other capacities, that was what my my vision and my goal was. And I was like, okay, I have worked hard to do good in the circles that I have access to currently, and this is an opportunity to expand those circles. And so, therefore, I am qualified because I have shown that I can be a good steward of the opportunities I have to serve. And so it makes sense that I can serve in larger circles, even though I definitely have a lot of <laughs> imposter syndrome. And that's a similar conversation I have to have with myself a lot in education because I'm definitely on the younger side um, compared to a lot of my colleagues. I work as a, um, an adjunct faculty for Southern Virginia University, and I have a really wonderful department that I work with. I really, really appreciate my colleagues. But in the grander scheme of the school, I'm probably, you know, in the bottom 10%, 15% age-wise. Um, and so there's definitely the sense of, like, do I even know what I'm doing? Um, do I even qualify as being able to call myself an academic? Um, and that's something that I have to fight back a lot and just ask, you know, am I doing what it takes to put forth good scholarship? And am I doing what it takes to have my heart in the right place in the way that I'm serving my students, in the way that I'm serving my academic community? At the end of the day, that's what matters. That's what qualifies me. Um, and I think there's a lot of parallels we can draw there with our religious service as well. So Esther, are you sharing um, your own <laughs> kind of fears and you're totally qualified and we're so thrilled to have you. <laughs> Um, you know, points to your second question that you asked too. So, and one of the cultural practices and expectations that lead us sometimes to distrust are, you know, assumptions about age and what, um, mm -hmm. you know, people of younger ages have to offer. Um, and, um, and, and this is true within our LDS context, you know, I'm surrounded by uh, amazing <laughs> young, um, faithful members of the church in my day job who, um, who we should be counseling with, like they've got great ideas, um, and great hope and great imagination. Um, but, uh, but there's a reluctance to, to trust and to counsel with them, um, especially when they have ideas that, that might be different from kind of the, the old ways of thinking about things. Um, in thinking about your first question, um, it's hard to bring your best and most authentic self um, if you um, if if you don't have a if you don't have a sense that this is really going to be a collaboration where where, mm -hmm. um, where you'll be uh, appreciated for the perspective um, and for what you bring to the table. Um, yeah. Anyway. These are great questions I've been thinking a lot about. Okay, anything else from anyone before we move on? Well, I'll just uh, second that. I do think that uh, at times our drive for conformity uh, can come at the expense of uh, authenticity. Um, and uh, I, I, I think it would be a, a good thing for all of us, of course, uh, as you invited Esther to uh, reflect on the ways that within our church spaces as well, uh, we can help, um, you know, open up uh, or, or break down uh, a stigma or, or a sense of, uh, uh, you know, a, a fear of being uh, uh, authentic. Um, uh, of course, uh, I, I think uh, 
sometimes there's a tension uh, between trying to say the right thing in particular contexts and speak to particular audiences uh, while also uh, trying to be authentic, um, of course, depending on who I'm talking to, uh, that might just for the sake of communicating effectively uh, might mm-hmm. impact how I uh, share certain ideas or what I maybe choose to disclose or, or things like that. Um, so there is a tension there. Um, but uh, I, I do think that all around regardless of the background or perspective we're coming from, uh, that um, one of the best ways to help cultivate that environment is by first extending that kind of grace and charity that we would uh, hope to receive ourselves uh, to those around us, um, because um, uh, certainly there's a give and take there. So I think it's important to help cultivate that actively. Exactly. It's a a two-way road. I I will, let me add, so I touch a couple of hot buttons for a second. I, uh, as Jackson says, there, there's time and place, there's appropriateness, there's all of those considerations. But um, because it comes up, I think I want to mention that I am, you know, I also have a sexual identity. I also am angry about things. Um, and those are characteristics that it's easy to feel are not welcome, are not wanted at all. And, uh, that have to be submerged. Um, just want to touch that button. Okay. That's a perfect lead in actually to the next topic, which is a consistent theme throughout all of these stories, and that's infertility or barrenness. Um, and to, to build off of what you just said, something that I found very poignant in my research of contemporary infertile um, experiences was the importance of communities giving space for the grief, giving space for the anger, and that if women didn't feel like there was space for that, then they weren't able to find the support that is so essential for them and for men in these very challenging circumstances, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And so, yes, I, I strongly believe that churches need to be a space where anger is given room, where sorrow is given room, where hurt is given room, because if we don't give room in our churches, where are we giving room for those things? Um, So one of the things that really shifted my paradigm when I researched the theological evolution of um, barren narratives was how we make a lot of assumptions on what the ancient Jews believed about fertility and conception based on our contemporary perspectives. And one of those paradigm shifts was there's a lot of um, scholarship that points towards the possibility of barrenness being seen as a natural or neutral state versus an abnormal or broken state. This idea that every womb is closed, every woman is born with a closed womb, and that the opening of that womb is an act of divinity. And one of the things that supports this is the use of that phrase, the opening of the womb, for both people that are stereotypically branded as one of, you know, the mainstream barren characters, such as Sarah or Rachel, but also for people who obviously were able to have kids fairly easily, such as Leah or even Rebecca. This idea where there has to be a plea to the divine to open that conduit for life. Um, Obviously, there's some problematic implications that can be made with that regarding sexual violence and other situations like that. But it was really fascinating for me to pause and consider how I had just been assuming what they believed about that because I didn't think that it could have changed. I felt like, oh, this is something that everybody's believed throughout all of history. But no, there can be very different paradigms that we approach even these most essential aspects of the mortal existence. Um, The other thing that's really beautiful here from a literary standpoint is a lot of this narrative surrounding the opening of a womb parallels the metaphorical opening of a heart. And that the phrases that are used in Hebrew to explain how a womb is opened by God are also very similar to the phrases that are used to describe how God opens a heart by grace, um, by teaching hearts mercy, by teaching our hearts to accept and love others. Um, And that all of this action to go against this natural state of being closed off comes through divine power. 
Okay, so my, my question in regards to this is, what assumptions do you make about the paradigms of ancient Hebrew culture? Anybody want to chime in on that one? Okay, we'll move forward then. Oh. Oh, yeah, one? No, go ahead. I always have something to say, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save it for the after talk. Yep. Um, okay, so moving forward in the narrative here, um, after Rachel, or sorry, not Rachel, Rebecca has uh, Jacob and Esau, which fun little historical fact there, when it talks about her counseling with God, she most likely went to an oracle that's, you know, falls into this, the mystical and magical side of Hebrew culture that is very uncomfortable for us in Latter-day Saint tradition, just kind of a fun note. But in the adult story of Jacob and Esau, um, you often hear, you know, the Esau sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of pottage, you know, it's some sort of a stew made with lentils. And the boiled down moralistic conclusion from that is don't trade physical things for spiritual things. And while I think that is a very valid um, exegesis from this story, as I was rereading this and trying to look at it from a more nuanced perspective and looking at it from this bigger concept of covenants and our relationship with God, it made me think about do I trade the easily digestible teachings for what could be my full birthright of knowledge and power? And I feel like this is very relevant in context of the restoration and the concept that the restoration is an ongoing process. And I believe it's also a very personal process that coming to understand and have a testimony of the evolving teachings and the progression that we are seeing in the way that we perceive and understand eternal truths. Um, it takes wrestling. It takes patience. It takes being willing to stay hungry, even when that, hung that hunger is painful. And I think that's something I felt a lot in recent years, that there's things that I hunger for spiritually that I have not been given yet, that we as a community have not been given yet. But if I settle for the spiritual pottage that might be offered, I will miss out on what I could find and what I could personally internalize if I'm willing to keep searching and keep waiting. Um, in context of that, the name Esau, one of the translations is whole or complete. And so it's this idea that Esau perceived himself as a perfected individual. He did not need his father's blessing. He did not need to improve. He did not need to learn and grow. And it parallels this idea of not striving with the Lord like Jacob was willing to do, of not seeking for blessings, of not seeking for further light and knowledge. So my question in regards to that are, in what ways do you settle for spiritual, spiritual pottage? And in what ways do you assume you are complete? Go for it if you have anything you want to add. Man, it will sound heretical or anti-cultural, but I, I, you said go for it. So, what basis for? It's very um, cultural to think of the temple recommend interview and the temple ordinances, the endowment in particular, as enough, as done, as satisfactory, as I'm going to call it spiritual pottage. And uh, that, you know, reading the New Testament, reading the Sermon on the Mount, there's so much more that has to be uh, part of a, um, a disciple's life, put it that way, that um, it, it I, as I said, anti-cultural but i think it is a kind of spiritual pottage yeah i think like you're saying this perspective that checking that as a box is a definite way that we settle um and that theology is much more circular than it is linear at least in my perspective and this idea that you know we go to the temple but it's not that we've gone we've done that it's that we go back and that each time we go back we are trading out the pottage for something that is more nourishing in the long term. 
or whatever that looks like, personal practice. I think one of my spiritual gifts has been um, faith. Like I, I have not growing up, it was easy um, to believe in the direction I wanted my life to to lead when it came to my spiritualness. Um, I mean, at, at one point in high school, my dad was the bishop. Um, my mom has been very active with uh, members of BYU's um, Department of Ancient Scripture and has been on, on BYU's dig and uh, in Egypt. And, and you know, so I, I grew up watching my parents study the scriptures and I grew up in a in a house where we talked about the scriptures and we talked about temple ordinances and, you know, I'm, and and as the youngest, all of my siblings were doing it and all my friends were. And, and I think, um, and, and I, and I served a mission and, and I've, I've had those moments spiritually where I've gone, okay, do I really, I mean, I, I still remember like it was yesterday walking in a, the streets of a, a city in, in the Altai mountains. That's, and this is a mountain range that runs into Northern Kazakhstan. Um, and, and it's gorgeous, but I'm in this small random city in Siberia going, man, am I really asking people if they want to hear about this 14 year old boy that had a vision? And I remember thinking, yeah, yeah, I, I do believe this story. And I, and so I've had those kind of moments where, where I've, I've received spiritual confirmation of the choices I've made when it comes to my own spirituality. Um, but as I mentioned previously, I'm a bonus mom. And uh, my husband's former spouse is um, not as diligent or does not value um, the commandments, does not value living uh, the gospel um, as a, to the same way we do. And because of uh, parenting situations, um, largely beyond my husband's control, um, you know, we don't have as much direct influence on our children. And, and so as, as the stepmom, I've been really racking my brain trying, okay, how am I going to be the best example? My patriarchal blessing talks about how um, and it's important that I teach my, my children correct principles and, and these girls are my kids now. And so I, I hold that responsibility. And, and I've realized recently that I had kind of settled that, yeah, I, I know the gospel. I've, I've, I can carry on a, an, a, an intelligent and informed conversation um, in all of these pieces. And, but then suddenly I'm now terrified of how am I going to um, bridge a cultural gap? How am I going to bridge a parenting style gap? How am I going to um, help my kids, if not develop their own testimonies, because their agency is still involved, but at least be an influence for good that invites them to come unto Christ in some ways. And I've been, I had been really worried about it and renewed my study of the gospel and found myself relatively humbled that Oh, I, I settled for being, having enough. I settled for understanding the gospel enough and have come to renew my, my treasuring of the scriptures and studying the gospel, because that is what's helping me to not just believe for myself, but to find ways to lovingly teach my kids and and teach them in a manner where I, I can't do it the way I would normally, or I would probably raise my own kids because I have to walk a tighter line. Thank you for sharing that. Now we're going to move forward now, and we're probably not going to discuss any of the questions in our on our hour time, but we can discuss those in our after party here. So in 26, um, we have Isaac moving. Uh, he's living with, I'm going to blank here, but I want to say it was the Philistines. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on which civilization it was. Oh, yes, I have it right here on the slide. Duh. Um, and he's beginning to amass wealth and political influence and they become jealous of him. And so in response to that, they stop up the wells. They plug these wells that Abraham has dug. Um, And just like we see the parallel between the opening of a womb and the opening of a heart, we see a linguistic parallel between the stopping up of a well and the phrase that is used for a hardening of the heart. Um, And in looking at this, wells were an essential part of survival in this environment. And by stopping up the wells, the Philistines weren't only holding Isaac back, they were holding themselves back. They were damaging the entire community. And so about this, Rabbi Adam Levitt says, when we try to gain power over each other, we act out of a belief that we do not have shared goals and must fight for sustenance, fight to be seen, to be heard. 
in the narrative that follows, as Isaac is trying to redig wells, the names of the wells gives us some interesting insight into the journey from having conflict to finding peace with someone that is creating conflict with you. So the name Isek, the first well that he tries to dig, is a conflict between two separate parties. And it's this idea of an us versus them dichotomy. There are two sides to this argument and we are we're fighting it out. The next one was Sitna, which is cognate with en enmity and connected to Satan, but not in the paradigm where Satan is an individual, but more in the paradigm where Satan is the, um, the mortal man, this idea of the inner adversary that we all have to fight with. So Isaac, if we follow this journey of the naming of the wells, he goes from seeing that there's two sides, that he and the Philistines are polar opposites, to now recognizing that conflict often comes from within your own heart. And then the final well that he digs is named Rehavot, which means wide spaces. And in this, he talks about there being enough space in this community for both him and the Philistines to coexist. So again, um, Rabbi Adam Levitt says, Now God has made room, made room in the land for me and the Philistines. He moves out of the us and them mentality, making his understanding of we a wide space that includes both him and the Philistines. He reclaims a bigger vision, a kind of faith that the wells are deep enough, his heart spacious enough to extend care to all who dwell in the land. So my question with this, and again, we'll just do this um, rhetorically for now, and we can discuss it afterwards. What, what wells are you stopping up in your life in an attempt to make a point or keep someone in their place? What can you do to better view your resources as rehavot, or wide spaces? So in 27, um, we have Rebecca and the whole uh, sticky narrative of her helping Jacob trick Isaac into giving him the birthright, into giving him this patriarchal blessing of the oldest child. And oftentimes this is framed throughout history as her being a tricky woman. And it's used kind of as this example of you can't trust women because they're going to trick you into doing things because they have their own agendas. But as I was reading this, and especially reading it with the context that was given earlier by Rabbi Adam, um, of seeing her as distrustful in her relationship for whatever reason that was, it made me see this rather as a story of her being deceptive, as her being someone who did not have confidence in her own revelation. She had received revelation before the twins were born that Jacob was to be the leader. Um, but she hadn't shared that with Isaac, and she still felt scared to share that with Isaac for whatever reasons that were, uh, most likely cultural. And so it made me think about how I have felt scared to share my revelation because of perceptions and cultural practices within my community and how that might have held me back and rippled out to affect other people negatively as well, just like how we see it in this story that her not being able to address this openly exacerbates the tension between Jacob and Esau and then with Isaac as well. So the questions for this are, what cultural expectations and ideologies do you promote that may undermine women's opportunity to seek revelation and exercise prophecy within their stewardships? How do you damage yourself and your relationships by internalizing these limiting expectations and ideologies? As I'm moving forward into 29, we get into the story of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. And again, another one that has always been difficult for me to, to wrestle with, but as I've been trying to step back from this and disconnect from the way that these narratives have been taught to me throughout my life, I was surprised with the, the insight I was able to gain. Um, and as we look at the situation specifically of Leah and Jacob and how she is pawned off on Jacob, the specific reason Laban gives is because in their culture, the younger daughter could not marry before the older daughter. And it made me think, how do we put cultural expectations as a community on people, especially in regards to covenants and relationships that force people into relationships that are less than ideal because we feel like it needs to be done, that that's how things should look. Um, and again, we see an instance of the Lord opening a womb. We won't dive into that there, but just kind of another iteration of this idea of it being divine intervention that opens the womb. So in regards to this story of Leah, 
In our rush to fulfill cultural expectations, do we create dowries of grief for the young adults in our community? Um, there's a really beautiful poem about this that was shared uh, in the dialogue and review just a couple weeks ago, and it was something that was ringing in my mind as I was reading this story. And then what deceptive narratives do we consciously or unconsciously employ in our attempt to coerce preferred behavior? So looking at the relationship that Laban has with his daughters and then with Jacob and all the ways that he tries to manipulate their behaviors to do what he thinks is right in their cultural practices. And I, I think, again, back to my experiences as a young adult and a lot of the, the mythos that is built up surrounding marriage um, and how now being a married person, I look back and realize how one-sided a lot of those narratives are and how um, it's often seen as a magical fix for a lot of things rather than just, again, a simple step in a bigger picture um, and how I strive to reverse that with a lot of the relationships I have with my students as I counsel with them, you know, inevitably, you know, they come to me with dating questions and things like that. And I always try to help them to step back and ask these bigger questions and not just assume that checking boxes and fulfilling culture expectations is going to give the result that you might be trained to think it's going to give. But if you're not following personal revelation, if you're not um, looking deeper, um, it's not going to provide true joy. Okay, um, we talked a little bit about this one in the, in the review, so I'm actually going to skip over it since I know we're almost out of time here. But I want to focus on one thing with the relationship between Rachel and Leah, and we see um, a parallel of this as well with the relationship of Elizabeth and Hagar. And this is from uh, Reinhardt Simpson in her talk, or in her um, article, My Sister, My Enemy. We must still be willing to question who the oppressors are, but we must do so with a consciousness that we are all at different times oppressors as well as victims. Sarah, Hagar, Rachel, and Leah are both victim and oppressor because they live within a complex power structure that both ignores their desires and rewards their complicity. And you see this repeated throughout all of these stories where the conflict often is something that is passed down where there's conflict with a parent, and so then that conflict turns into conflict with a sibling, which turns into a conflict with a spouse, which then turns into conflict with a child. And questioning how we can exist in both of these spaces at the same time, that we can both oppress and be a victim, that it's not something that is bilateral, that there is intersectionality to that. Um, so the question with that is, how do you find yourself responding negatively towards your sisters and brothers because of pressures you feel to be, behave, or perform in a certain way? When we look at situations where a problem needs to be solved and isn't, do we consider the cost for that individual? Do we assume others always have the same resources and emotional reserves as us? You know, if someone is struggling to overcome an addiction, if someone is struggling financially, if someone is struggling with infertility, there's a lot of financial, emotional, and spiritual resources and reserves that it takes to tackle these situations, and not everyone has the privilege to have what you might have, and so do we give grace for those differences of circumstance. Okay, and then in closing here, um, we're kind of coming to some final reconciliations within these bigger family conflicts, and one of the things that happens is Jacob removes his family from the area where Laban is living. And to establish peace in this scenario, he had to set boundaries. Um, and so my question for you is, what boundaries do you need to draw to establish peace? There's this fine balance between maintaining covenants, maintaining these bonds to create a strong community, but also creating boundaries so that even with our differences, we can still experience personal and communal peace. And last of all, so we have the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel. And I, I'd always kind of treated this separate to a lot of the other things. You know, we hear about it individually and his covenant that he makes with God and his change of name. But when I looked at it as part of the bigger narrative, I realized it came before the conclusion of his wrestle with his brother that Jacob had to align his relationship with God, that he had to, and this wasn't, you know, him again submitting. He was very much coming to God and working with him. Um, 
he was wrestling with his covenant. He was wrestling with his identity before God. And once he'd come to a concordance with God, he was then able to come to a concordance with his brother because he was able to come to that with an open heart and humility as he resolved that conflict. And God had prepared the way for him by softening the heart of Esau. So looking at these um, repeating narratives, I just want you to think about the following. Throughout them, we have instances of spiritual and emotional binding. Some promote progress, others prevent it. The act of binding oneself to another is not inherently good or inherently evil. It is the intentions and execution that make it so. Without binding, though, there is no community, there is no progress, there is no body of Christ. So I just wanted to ask you, how do we create bindings in our lives that improve rather than impede, that strengthen rather than constrain? So I just want to finish on this. Um, again, there's more content we can discuss after we wrap up with the prayer because I know some people need to get going. But thank you for taking this time with me today. Um, it really was a blessing. I'm going to switch over so you can see my face for a second. Um, it really was a blessing to be able to review these chapters and to seek inspiration for what I felt like we needed to come together and think about today. And I have a strong testimony that despite differences, that despite um, things that are so easy to create conflict, if we follow these patterns of seeking to wrestle with ourselves, to wrestle with God first, that paths are open to resolve those conflicts in our communities. And that as we bind ourselves as a community, we will find greater individual strength. And I just leave these things with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.